on the screen this morning, and if you're listening uh, by uh, the internet, uh, there's going to be a picture come up. Is it up there yet? Hopefully it'll come up. There's a picture of several. There we go. Now, these are hard to see, and you're going to wonder what this is about for a few moments, but you just uh, hang with me for a little bit. I've entitled the message this morning, Joy in Chains. Joy in Chains. You're looking at a number of old buildings in this picture, uh, which at one time, believe it or not, housed one of those buildings, housed the great and famous uh, comedian Bob Hope when he was a young man. These buildings that you're looking at represent uh, a place of incarceration for people, young, young men who were in trouble with the law. Now, Bob Hope, some of, most of you know that name. Some of you younger ones may not that much, but quite a famous comedian and, uh, and, and very popular and uh, very rich. He made it, did, did very well considering he had been in one of these places. But he never liked to talk much about his days of incarceration once he became famous. But he lost his freedom for a period of time in his life because he broke the law. He grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and he got in trouble with the law, and he was uh, assigned by the court uh, to be in this particular institution. Now, what's interesting about Bob Hope is that Bob Hope eventually escaped from that incarceration, and as near as I can tell, they eventually stopped looking for him, and uh, he went on to become a, a very famous personality in Hollywood traveled the world and did a lot of uh, work with uh, veterans and uh, just very popular men. As a matter of fact, at this very same institution, the country singer who wrote the song, Take This Job and Shove It, I don't necessarily recommend that, but uh, he was also incarcerated uh, in, in this place in one of those buildings, along with many, many, many other young men, as many as 1,200 at any given time. <clears throat> I share this with you as a backdrop because I, I, I spent nearly seven years of my life working in this very same institution in ministry, in and out of most of those buildings at one time or another. Two of the buildings in particular, I spent uh, many, many days uh, ministering. And I can tell you that from firsthand experience, of being in that atmosphere, one of the most difficult experiences a person can have in this life is to lose their freedom. I don't know if you've thought about it very much recently, but freedom is such a very, very special thing for us to be able to experience. And freedom gives us, uh, well, it gave us America. America was founded in the first place because the United States of America, more than any other country in the world, gives people choices and opportunities. Choices and opportunities are the ingredients for hope. Choices and opportunities are the ingredient for hope. Freedom is, I, I wrote this down, freedom is like a garden that produces hope for a better tomorrow. Can I say that again? Freedom is like a garden that produces hope for a better tomorrow. Now, I don't know if you've thought about it very much or not, but <clears throat> people without hope are some of the most miserable people in the world to ever be around because they can't see any options for tomorrow. And sometimes 
life can feel that way, even for, for really great people that we know. Uh, people that are mature and people that uh, have done well in their lives, but everybody, it seems, sooner or later in the course of their life existence can feel that way, uh, hopeless about something, some situation. And it may be that you've got something that comes to your mind even right now as I'm speaking of the subject, that there's something in your life that causes you to feel hopeless. Now, let's think about this from the standpoint of our author we're going to study in a moment. What if we had to wear one of these around every day? You see the picture of the ball and chain? What if we were dragging one of those around everywhere we went? What if you're sitting in the pew today, uh, getting in and out of your car, trying not to scratch your car up, and dragging it across the parking lot through the snow and, and into your Sunday school class and just had to drag this ball and chain around all the time. Uh, how, how would that feel? Wouldn't it, would it make you feel somewhat limited in terms of the possibilities that you could uh, experience in life? What would that look like and how would that feel? Uh, there's a picture we're going to put on the screen and it's from that same institution uh, where uh, I showed you the buildings. And I can remember supervising many inmates in this very dining hall. And you can see there are some down in the far right and uh, eventually other cottages or buildings uh, with their inmates would come in and fill in these other sides. I don't know, you can do a little survey there, but there's a whole bunch of inmates there. And I can remember sitting in that dining hall helping to supervise their coming and going and their eating. And I can remember breaking up knife fights and I can remember breaking up uh, little scuttles that, that would go on kind of under the surface because uh, a place like that is filled with bullies. Bullies. And bullies will take your dessert and they will take your food and the weaker inmates uh, would go hungry and wouldn't have the things that they needed. And so it was part of our job to make sure that there was equity and fairness and and I can remember wondering many times what I would do if they all turned on me in a fit of anger. And, and here's why. Because every last one of them hated everything about that place. They hated it. They didn't want to go in the first place. When they got there, they didn't like it. And from the moment they set foot in the place, they couldn't wait to get out of there. It was an ugly experience for everyone in many ways. And I, I share it with us to remind everyone that our study in Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. Not only was he in prison, but he was chained like a ball and chain, chained to a Roman guard. A situation that was really far worse than what we've seen in these pictures. Yet this book is characterized, get this, this is interesting. This book is characterized as a letter of joy. How does that work? How does that work? In 104 verses in this letter, joy is mentioned 16 times, no less than 16 times in this letter. And yet Paul is writing it from a setting that most people would find absolutely deplorable. No light, few supplies to try to write the things that he was getting from the Lord to try to write down dampness and cold all about, no privacy to wash, no privacy to relieve himself when necessary, uh, someone always looking over his shoulder for everything that he wrote down, 
someone listening to his every word and every conversation with anybody, someone who's listening to every time he sang a praise song or a hymn to God while he was in the prison, just absolutely no freedom and no sense of hope, no choices, no opportunities. This is our writer, our author here today. And so it's in this context that I want us to read the next portion of our study. But before I do, I want to ask each of us a question. What prison with chains could be robbing you of your joy today? Now, this is for you. This is, this is God, are you going to speak to me today? Is there, is there something that you wanted me to hear today? I came out in the snow and a lot of people stayed in, whatever, but I showed up and I'm here. And is there really something you want me to get from this? What prison with chains could be robbing you of your joy today? Well, we got a couple of pictures up here just to give us some sample. We got a picture of, uh, uh-oh, coming in April. Uh, Still a little your joy and wondering what, uh, what your tax bill is going to be like or if you're going to get a refund, and if so, how much, and if not, how much in the hole, and if I'm in the hole, uh, do I have any resources to cover that, and what's that going to look like? Or, uh, you know, something that is robbing you of your joy today could just be debt. Some, some of us have this incredible debt. I mean, it's just huge. It's a great big ball. It's hundreds, hundreds and thousands of dollars in some cases that makes us feel like there's just no, no, no choice, no option out there. It's just hanging over our head and we're just stuck, stuck, stuck. And I just feel like I'm in a prison of, of uh, no freedom uh, on this thing. Or here's another picture just to give a symbol of, of some other things. Explicit content. What, what's that about? Well, we're in a prison with chains uh, of pornography. And no, nobody knows it, at least that we know of. Nobody is aware of it that we're, we can think of because it hasn't really come to light. And we've been, I've been kind of hiding it. But it's something that really plagues me. And I feel like I'm in a prison and I can't seem to stop it. I don't know how to stop it. I've tried to stop it and I couldn't do it any better than somebody trying to quit a smoking habit or any other kind of a habit. Or it may be not explicit content, but it may be a spirit of lust. And so I just have lust all the time. I just, I just feel it. It rises up inside me, and I, and I don't know how to cope with it. I don't know how to deal with it. Or it may be certain addictions that we have succumbed to over a course of time, and it just feels like a prison with chains. And I, I just can't seem... And, I, and I, it could be a wretched childhood experience that we're dragging like a ball and chain through our life. And we may be in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and it just never went away. And it's just what that thing was just in there. And it just troubled my heart. And it made me feel depressed and discouraged. It could be the memories of some poor choices that we made before, maybe before we came to know Jesus Christ. And the devil throws those things up in our face. And it's just real hard to have to remember those things. It could be something that we tried really hard to win at. And we, we, we enrolled ourselves in a program or maybe in a sports event or in some contest and we really put it on the line and we made our very best effort and we fell flat on our face and it seemed like we fell flat in front of the whole, the whole world. Everybody knew it. Everybody in the church knew it. Everybody in the community knew I tried and I didn't make it. Or it could be the fear of failing because no one ever believed in us. 
No one ever gave us a pat on the back or an encouraging word to say, you know, you could amount to something if you'll stay hard at some things and work hard and, and, and study and all these kinds of things. Or, or maybe it's a prison of affliction that you may feel this morning. And we have these constant battles from time to time with our health. I'm expecting to get better. I'm better than I was last week, so I feel hopeful about that. But there are some people that don't feel hopeful today about their health. And, and, and a part of that is, is why Dave came and asked for prayer and for wisdom and for blessing from God, because sometimes it's hard to get a word of hope, uh, choices and opportunities that, that give us light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you know, you can be chained to your house. You can have a ball and chain in your house because you can't get out of your house. Sometimes the ball and chain can be being chained to a hospital bed and you can't get out. And you just feel like, you know, life is over. You know, one of the hardest things that my father ever dealt with, he's now with the Lord. But as he progressed with the Alzheimer's in his life, the heart, one of the hardest hurdles for him to get over was when he was no longer allowed to drive his car. And it hurt him. It, it took his freedom. He felt like a ball and chain was around him and he was, he was stuck and always at the mercy of someone else's convenience. And so these are tough things. And, and here's the Apostle Paul, and he's writing this word to us. And he's not sounding like that at all. Now, we mentioned it a number of times how Paul's imprisonment, it was just a part of the challenges that uh, he faced from beatings to shipwreck uh, to being betrayed by so-called brothers in Christ uh, to pain and misery and oftentimes tortured for Christ. But listen to his words. Now, here comes the lesson. Here comes the scripture for this morning's teaching. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Listen, listen to what he's doing given his really, really bad circumstances. Now, I want you to know, brothers, I think he's talking to the church. I want you to know, church, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Let me pause there a minute. You know where that Praetorian Guard is sort of like the men in black in Washington, D.C. The suits with the dark glasses, and they're watching out for the president and all the important people in Washington, D.C. It's sort of like this, <clears throat> the agents that are charged with the safety uh, of, uh, of the key leaders uh, in our country. The Praetorian Guard, he says, the whole Praetorian Guard even knows about it, and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers in Christ, people that have given, trusted Jesus already, most of them trusting in the Lord Jesus because I was in jail, because of my imprisonment. And not only are they believing and encouraged by it, but they, they are standing up and speaking boldly like they wouldn't have before because they were fearful before. And all of a sudden, all this bad stuff that has happened in my life has, has turned into something really good. This is one of the most incredible three verses I've studied in a long time. And I want to share some thoughts with you for your encouragement, because this isn't about being saved or not saved, because you know who you are. 
You know, if you're saved, you're a person who has said, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died for my sin. He was resurrected from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back for everybody that belongs to him. And I'm one of them because I've been, I'm, in, I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus. I've asked him to live in my life and my heart. And I know when I did that. And so I'm in. I know I'm in because I did what he said to do. But if you're not in and you're not sure that you're a child of God, you may be a religious person. You may come to church on a regular basis. You may do a lot of religious things, but you don't know for sure that you're in the family. Really doesn't matter. Both those in the family and not in the family have hard places in life. We have these prisons that we, we deal with with change. So this is really for, for anybody and everybody. So how did Paul find joy? This is the question I ask myself. How did Paul find joy chained to a Roman guard in a Roman prison? How did he do that? How did he do that? And is there anything I can learn from that so that when I don't have everything work out just the way I want it to in my life or in the life of somebody I care about a whole lot, or some really terrible circumstance that I'm having to deal with that never seems to get any better, is there anything I can learn from what Paul did there that would help me to find joy and some confidence that this is all going to work out okay? Because either Paul was out of touch with reality, it's really one of three things. Either this guy is out of touch, either he had too many beatings in the prison and his brain was not working right, and he said some things that really didn't make sense, or he was an outright liar to us. And what he, what he was doing was giving us those Pollyanna phrases that we get once in a while, those little euphemisms that uh, sound really good about trying to negotiate life. Uh, a lot of human engineers use these things, and I'm not saying that they're all bad, and I'm not saying that, it, I, and I agree that it's good to think on the bright side of life and all that sort of thing. But I'm telling you, some of that stuff's Pollyanna if it's not with Christ, that's for sure. But was he lying to us? Was his brain scrambled? Did he not make sense? Or this third possibility, was he telling us an amazing truth from his own experience, his own life experience? Well, I'm going to tell you that to the best of my knowledge, he was not out of touch with reality, and he was definitely not a liar. I believe God gave Paul an unusual gift of being able to sort out truth from error. And I can tell you that the ability to do that in our day of not knowing who to believe is really vital. How, how do we negotiate life in this day and age? You students, you sit down, you sit in front, you call, from college all the way down. You sit before teachers and instructors every day and you listen to them wax eloquent. The question is, are they giving you truth or not? And how would you know that? Just because you went and paid for a good education, does that mean that everything you paid for can be carved in stone and that every professor had it 100% right? You hope they did, but how are you going to know? How are you going to figure that out? How are you going to sort that out when you turn on the news? How are you going to know whether we got, you know, Bad truth, fake news, or whether we got truthful news, or whether we got something in between. How are we going to know? How are we going to figure those things out? So I believe God gave Paul an unusual gift to be able to sort that. 
And, and he sorted it because he knew God. He knew the word of truth. Now, he didn't have everything that we have access to now, but he had the spirit of Christ in him. He had the spirit of God in him. And, and I believe that God gave him truth about these kinds of life experiences. Now, last week, we didn't have time to look at it. We ran out, no, not last week, week before last, I should say, uh, for verse 9. But I want to draw your attention to verse 9 before I, I come back to this. And this is what verse 9 says. Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Now, now we can just stop right there and we can say that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we're lovers of God, we must be lovers of people. And so in being lovers of people, we, we need to practice kindness with one another. Can I get an amen on that? It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but it means we need to practice kindness and gentleness and, and, and to be affirming and encouraging one another. He said, I pray that your love may abound still more and more, but he says this way, in real knowledge and all discernment, in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, in the Greek, uh, I kind of, I, I gave this just two-word phrase to help us understand what he's really saying there. In the Greek, it speaks of knowledgeable knowledge. <laughs> it's sort of like a double, knowledgeable knowledge. In other words, really smart knowledge is what he's saying. Now, would, would, you say, would you say that this is a pretty smart gadget? Yeah, it's a phone. It's a phone. But to make sure that everybody buys one of these, they call it a smartphone. I already knew it was smart, didn't you? I already knew it was smart, but they call it a smartphone. And that's kind of what, it's a double. He's saying knowledgeable knowledge, really smart wisdom, really wise stuff. Not some Pollyanna catchphrase, but in a discernment that sorts out the phony from the real when it comes to understanding things about life and about God's will for our lives. So Paul, Paul had a knowledgeable knowledge from God about joy. Paul had a knowledgeable knowledge from God about joy and the real truth about something we all enjoy, and that's happiness, the real truth about it. Now, it's interesting to me, science is trying like crazy to explain what Paul knew all along. It's just really amazing to me. I'm going to show you something here. I, I, I hope that it translates okay. I hope that you can hear it and you can process it. But I've got about a four and a half minute video that I want you to listen to where science is trying like crazy to explain what Paul already knew because of his knowledgeable knowledge. And this is what he knew. And if you're, you may want to just grab a hold of this one. From young to old, external circumstances do not determine our joy and happiness in life. Amen. External circumstances... Paul's circumstances, his external circumstances were lousy. The circumstances of these inmates that I showed you pictures of the buildings where they stayed, it was lousy, bad external circumstances. Food wasn't very good, had to go to the bathroom when they told you to, had to wake up and go to bed when they told you to. You didn't have a minute's freedom. External circumstances, Paul said, his knowledgeable knowledge says, it doesn't determine your joy or happiness in life. Because if that was the case, then Paul would have been lying about his joy because he couldn't have had joy. He's miserable. 
I want you to listen to, this is a Dr. Acor. I don't know that much about him, but I, when, I, when I listened to what he had to say, I thought it was kind of interesting because he's a scientist, a behavioral scientist. And he's studying this subject of happiness from a behavioral perspective. And it's interesting what they think they've figured out, but it's something I'm just going to tell you in advance that the Apostle Paul already knew. But listen to his description of how he's figuring some things out by studying human behavior. Run that. Why do you waste your time studying happiness at Harvard? Seriously, what does a Harvard student possibly have to be unhappy about? Embedded within that question is the key to understanding the science of happiness. Because what that question assumes is that our ex external world is predictive of our happiness levels. When in reality, if I know everything about your external world, I can only predict 10% of your long-term happiness. 90% of your long-term happiness is predicted not by the external world, but by your, the way your brain processes the world. And if we change it, if we change our formula for happiness and success, what we can do is change the way that we can then affect reality. What we found is that only 25% of job successes are predicted by IQ. 75% of job successes are predicted by your optimism levels, your social support, and your ability to see stress as a challenge instead of as a threat. I talked to a boarding school up in New England, probably the most prestigious boarding school, and they said, we already know that. So every year, instead of just teaching our students, we also have a wellness week, and we're so excited. Monday night, we have the world's leading expert coming in to speak about adolescent depression. Tuesday night is school violence and bullying. Wednesday night, Wednesday night is eating disorders. Thursday night is illicit drug use. And Friday night, we're trying to decide between risky sex or happiness. I said, that's most people's Friday nights. <laughs> which I'm glad you liked, but they did not like that at all. Silence on the phone. And into the silence, I said, I'd be happy to speak at your school, but just so you know, that's not a wellness week, that's a sickness week. What you've done is you've outlined all the negative things that can happen, but not talked about the positive. The absence of disease is not health. Here's how we get to health. We need to reverse the formula for happiness and success. In the past three years, I've traveled to 45 different countries, working with schools and companies in the midst of an economic downturn. And what I found is that most companies and schools follow a formula for success, which is this. If I work harder, I'll be more successful. And if I'm more successful, then I'll be happier. That undergirds most of our parenting styles, our managing styles, the way that we motivate our behavior. And the problem is, it's scientifically broken and backwards for two reasons. First, every time your brain has a success, you just change the goalpost of what success looked like. You got good grades, now you have to get better grades. You got into a good school, now you have to get a better school. You got a good job, now you have to get a better job. You hit your sales target, we're gonna change your sales target. And if happiness is on the opposite side of success, your brain never gets there. What we've done is we've pushed happiness over the cognitive horizon as a society. And that's because we think we have to be success successful, then we'll be happier. But the real problem is our brains work in the opposite order. If you can raise somebody's level of positivity in the present, then their brain experiences what we now call a happiness advantage, which is your brain at positive performs significantly better than it does at negative neutral stress. Your intelligence rises, your creativity rises, your energy levels rise. In fact, what we found is that every single business outcome improves. Your brain at positive is 31% more productive than it your brain at negative neutral stress. You're 37% better at sales. Doctors are 19% faster, more accurate at coming up with the correct diagnosis when positive instead of negative neutral stress, which means we can reverse the formula. If we can find a way of becoming positive in the present, then our brains work even more successfully as we're able to work harder, faster, and more intelligently. What we need to be able to do is to reverse this formula so we can start to see what our brains are actually capable of. Because dopamine, which floods into your system when you're positive, has two functions. Not only does it make you happier, it turns on all the learning centers in your brain, allowing you to adapt to the world in a different way. 
we found that there are ways you can train your brain to be able to come more positive. In just a two minute span of time, done for 21 days in a row, we can actually rewire your brain, allowing your brain to actually work more optimistically and more successfully. We've done these things in research now in every single company that I've worked with, getting them to write down three new things that they're grateful for for 21 days in a row, three new things each day, and at the end of it, their brain starts to retain a pattern of scanning the world not for the negative, but for the positive first. Journaling about one positive experience you've had over the past 24 hours allows your brain to relive it. Exercise teaches your brain that your behavior matters. We find that meditation allows your brain to get over the cultural ADHD that we've been creating by trying to do multiple tasks at once. It allows our brains to focus on the task at hand. And finally, random acts of kindness or conscious acts of kindness, we get people where they open up their inbox to write one positive email, praising or thanking somebody in their social support network. And by doing these activities and by training your brain just like we train our bodies, what we found is we could reverse the formula for happiness and success and in doing so, not only create ripples of positivity, but create a real revolution. Thank you very much. Well, that was pretty fast. Um, and uh, you can kind of sort through why I would have bothered to put something like that on there. But if the scientists are correct, the circumstances of being trapped are only 10% of the problem, according to what he said about not feeling happy. The 90% has to do with really what Paul is talking about here. And I hope that you can see that correlation, that Paul was on to something of truth from God, the God who wired us, the God who put the DNA in us, the God who made us to think and feel and all those kinds of things. Because Dr. Uh, Dr. William Berry says, many people feel trapped by aspects of their life, trapped in an unhappy relationship, at an unfulfilling job, or generally unhappy with their life despite their basic needs being met, unquote. But Paul says they need to stop studying happiness and start studying joy. We know that true joy comes, now listen, true joy comes from a renewed mind through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's Romans 12 too. You can go home and look it up. Transformed by the renewing of our minds, the scripture says. And then it goes on to say in Philippians 2, 4, and we haven't gotten there yet in our study, but it goes on to say, do not uh, look to, to your own uh, interest, but look to the interests of others because this is the attitude that we found in Christ Jesus. So this is a different mindset that God is wanting us to tune into when we, when we become uh, Christians. And I, that is why Paul, the, although he's, he's dragging this ball and chain around, this, this is why Paul could experience true joy. And guess what? Guess what? I'm going to show you right before we leave, God helping me, that it did not negatively affect his success. His, his ball and chain and all the trouble that he dealt with. Now, I hope you're thinking about this. Some of you who are young, you're going you're gonna to have all kinds of trials and tribulations and struggles before it's over with. Some of us are in some huge ones right now, and some of, the, some of us have been just come out of one, and some of us will be going into another one before, it's, before Jesus comes. Jesus said you'll have trials and tribulations. Trouble, flipsis is the Greek word, persecution in this world. But be of good cheer, he said, I have overcome the world. Well, how can we be of good cheer? Well, Paul's showing us how we can be of good cheer even in a hard place like that. And that's what I want us to see, is that he was not marginalized in his success for God. 
Now, I can't take credit for what I'm about to show you, when I, but when I read, read some of these thoughts in my studies, my heart resonated with these thoughts, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to share this. I'm going to share this with our folks. So to help you look at, at three, three concepts uh, in these three verses, uh, I want to ask you a question first. What caused Paul to be thrown into prison in the first place? What caused all of Paul's troubles in the very first place? And the answer is his constant preaching of the gospel. That continued to get him in trouble after trouble after trouble. In other words, Paul was denied freedom of choice and freedom of opportunities for long periods of his life because he continually pursued his greatest passion in life. What was Paul's greatest passion in his life? It was to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can picture that when Paul went to the gas pump to put gas in his car, he talked about the gospel because it was his passion. And we can imagine that when he went to the Super Bowl party uh, 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 for the, between the Eagles and the Patriots, uh, someone talked about the gospel. Sooner or later, he did. He brought it up somehow, some way, even while he was watching the game. Why? Because it was his passion. It's just what he lived for. When he ran to, to, to Carson's to see if the store closing had any good deals for him, uh, he talked about the gospel when he got in the store to the clerks and to anybody that was uh, watching him pick out some clothes. And when, when he went over to Baldwin uh, to eat lunch, uh, he was talking about the gospel. And when he went into his classes uh, at the university or in our high schools or whatever, they were th he was thinking about the gospel. And every chance he could do with his fellow students and whatever, he was talking about the gospel. And when he would sit down to eat his meal, he would be thinking about the gospel. This was his passion. This is what got him in his troubles, his passion for the gospel. And so we see this in uh, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers that my circumstances, my problems, my ball and chain is turned out for the greater progress of what? My passion. The, the, the thing that I wanted to be doing all the time is the gospel. The gospel caused him to be put in jail. His passion, every time he turned around, the very thing that he was drawn to that he had to keep doing over and over and over and over and God never let him alone with it was the thing that caused his problems. His passion was the progress of the gospel. Now let me ask you a question. What is your passion? What is your passion? I believe that every human being has some identifiable passion in life. And once again, I don't think you have to be saved in the family of God to have a passion in life. I think that God has given every created being a passion. It could be music. Some of you, as soon as we do the music, you light up like a Christmas tree, and you just love it. And, 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 if, and if I studied for 25 hours and gave the best sermon of my entire life, when you got home, you would talk about how great the choir was. It's humbling to the preachers, but that's what you do because of your passion. Now, I don't say that you should focus only on that, but, but you know what I'm saying. For some of you, your passion is sports. 
And, and sports is put ahead of everything else, including church and activities and devotions and reading the Bible and prayer and all those kinds of things. For some of us, it's such a passion that it consumes us. For some of us, it's education, and they never stopped, and they can't stop. They just love, uh, they just love it. My wife and I went to the library the other evening, and this older couple came in. How did I know they were old? Well, they looked old. But I could hear them being old because he was talking about this loud in the library. And she was saying, well, you just need to think a little bit better before you go do things. And Cynthia and I are looking at each other like, you know, jeepers. Somebody can calm down. But I could see it. I could see they were ravenous. They, they, in their old age, they loved reading. They loved studying. They, they made themselves get out late at night to go into the library to keep reading and feeding their brain with things. For some of us, it's educational pursuits. And for some, it's a career. For some, it's a, the marriage is the big deal. And everything about your life is about your marriage or, or it's about your family and your kids. Or it, for some people, they have a quest and a lust and a passion for power and control, and, and, and they can't rest until they get it, and they, they need more and more. It's like the guy said, they keep, you keep moving the, the target uh, and changing things. For some people, it's fame, until I, if I can't become famous, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Or I, I love to write until I can be published, I, I just don't know what I'm going to do. For some of us, it's hobbies. Uh, we just have a tremendous passion for certain hobbies. For some people, they can't stay away from the YMCA. They can't stay away from Anytime Fitness. They can't stay away from it because they are consumed with physical fitness. And you're just driven. It's a good thing. But it's, they're driven by it. Or for some people, it's a great thing. It's helping people, helping others, and mercy ministries. And you can't do enough, and you can wear yourself thin because you're consumed. It's a passion that God has put within you. For some people, it has to do with politics, and they just can't get enough of it and, and until they can get into that arena. You know what I'm saying. So the question is, what is your passion? What is your passion? For Paul, it was the progress of the gospel. Now, I can tell you what my passion is, but I'm not going to tell you about that because this isn't about me. It's about you and, and, and your work with God. But, but I have a passion. I have several, but I have a main passion. I know what it is. And I, and I know that it consumes me and it drives me. Every day I think about it. And when I go to bed, I think about it. And when I wake up in the nighttime, I think about how I haven't met certain things and different, those, those things happen when you're passionate about something. Have you identified your passion? Because I believe it is God created when we were born and it's God given, a passion. Now, this is apart from knowing God. Of course, once we come to know God, then he may adjust or add to our passion some specific assignment for his pleasure. But we all have a passion for something. What's yours? When we cannot pursue our passions... It often feels like we're in a prison, does it not? When we can't do the thing that we are most passionate about, we feel like we've got a ball and chain around our leg. And you feel like you're in prison with no choices and opportunities to fulfill your dream. That's a sad thing. But notice what happens in the next verse where the pursuit of our passions brings challenges and obstacles. So the first theme was passion. What's your passion? Now, the second thing Paul talks about is 
something that happens as a result of our passions, and it's called problems. His passion caused his problems, and that happens in life. Many times when we're pursuing our passions, we, we find obstacles and, and issues that come into our world. You know, a, a, a hobby that is trying to collect stamps or coins or whatever it is that you want to do. And you know what? You can, you can let your passion, which may not be a bad thing, drive you into debtor's prison if you're not careful. You can overrun your budget. You can do all kinds of crazy things as a result of, a, of the passion that we might have. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 13. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorium guard and to everyone else. My problem, so that my problems in the cause of Christ. So we're moving from passion to what are the problems that come as a result of our passion and living in this life. Paul's life all through the book of Acts and the, all the letters that he wrote are, are a story, a chronicle of the many problems that were brought on by his passion to spread the gospel. So isn't life interesting? I was thinking about this. Isn't life interesting in that the very thing that we want or need to do with our life is often the source of the problems that interfere with our happiness? The thing that we're passionate about produces the problems that attempt to destroy our joy and our happiness. So, I, you know, nobody really knows, but I got this problem down at the office. And I, and I got problems with one of my kids. And I, I got issues with my husband or my wife. It's just not a good, you know, thing going on between us or, or I, I got properties, and my properties are a nuisance to me. Some of the things need work, and I don't have time, and I don't have money to fix the stuff, and my properties are a problem for me. Or my finances, I can't just can't quite seem to see my way through, or I'm not really sure what to do with the extra resources that I have, and just my resources. I'm glad I have resources, but I don't know what to do with them. I don't, I don't know what's the smart thing to do and who to trust them with. And, or uh, I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm advan advancing in my career like I should be. Uh, I, I, didn't, oh, I didn't make the first string. I, I got on the B team. And I didn't make the A team. And I was going for that. And I, I'm trying to build a, a case for, my, you know, for my, my athletic career. Or I got, I got turned down by my first choice in the college that I wanted to go to. Or I, you know, I got in the car and the transmission started whining and didn't want to go in reverse. Or I, 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 couldn't, could, I sent in a manuscript and I couldn't get my book published. And they sent it back to me. Or I wrote a song and people hated it. You know, the, the passion that we're pursuing sometimes creates the things that, 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 that taint and marginalize our joy and our happiness. And no one is immune from problems in life. So we're going from passion to problems. And sometimes the problems that come from pursuing the passion and our dreams, they're going to look and feel like an absolute prison some days. But notice what he says in verse 14. Here we go. Here's the third one. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my problems, because I had all these problems because of my passion, there's a bunch of people that trusted in Jesus. And even more than that, they're standing up 
when they used to sit down because they were fraidy cats to talk about Jesus, but now because of what they've seen me going through with my problems because I pursued my passion, all of a sudden they're standing up with courage. And so he says that in, the, in following his passion, he's encountered problems, but his problems have caused more believers to speak up. In other words, what the enemy brought his way in problems ended up helping him pursue his dream of spreading the gospel. That's interesting to me. In fact, verse 13, and we read it earlier, says that even the White House Secret Service has heard about Paul and the gospel that he preached. He certainly wanted to get the word of God into that camp. How in the world do you get a chance to talk to the Secret Service? When do you get to walk into the White House and talk to the men in black with the shades and the guns? When do you get to march in there and talk about the gospel to those guys? And yet he said, my problems even reached into the White House, into the Secret Service and the CIA and all those people that you're not supposed to be able to talk to or even know who they are. So from his passion to his problems to his attitude about life, Paul had an incredible, and here's the third word, perspective. Passion, problems, and now let's take a look at Paul's perspective about life and serving God. That perspective was one that shows what the scientists are only dabbling at trying to explain. That guy was eloquent. I enjoyed listening to him. But he's dabbling around and trying to understand something that Paul's already been talking about. That it's, 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 not, it's 10% circumstances and it's 90% perspective about problems and about life. Hello? That's what the science, that's what I heard. I hope that's what you heard. It's only 10%. And if, and, and if we can get our minds wrapped around some, some different way of thinking about life and problems and the ball and chain, we might find that we are more productive in the pursuit of the passion in the first place. You see, our circumstances do not define us. Our perspective of our circumstances is the key. This is why the church growth movement needs to be careful. Because the church growth movement, movement says that the bigger, the more numbers that we put, that we pack in this place, the better. And then once we set, we want 500. And then when we hit 500, we want 600. And when we hit 600, then we want 1,000. And when we hit 1,000, then we want 1,500. And the deal is you never get happy. You never find any joy. Now, it's not a bad thing to set goals. And it's not a bad thing to chase dreams. And it's not a bad thing to try to improve. And yes, the church ought to grow. But when you set your mind to thinking about it that way, you find that there's, there's not a whole lot of joy when you fail to hit the, uh, the, the target. And so that's dangerous. Paul is telling us something else about perspective. Uh, he recognized that his trust was well-placed in God's plan for his life. And even though the problems that he was actually accomplishing more with God's help, he, he realized with his help he, he could do even more than by himself. That, 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 that's what God says about the tithe. And about giving. And God says, I don't need your little money. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need what you put in the offering. I don't need it. I have more than you can't even imagine how much I have. 
But I'm, I'm, I'm saying to you that if you will remember me, if you will keep your place and your position of submission to authority and respect for God and respect for His house and the fact that God says, this is how I want you to build this. This is how I want you to sustain it. This is how I want you to support it. When we are obedient to those things, God says, you put that in the plate and then uh, you have to trust. And here's what I will tell you, that if you trust with a pure heart, I will do more with the 90% left over than you could do with the whole 100% by yourself. That's what this is all about. With God, our joy is only limited by our perspective. Even the science of happiness has figured that out. And remember, when it comes or seems to you that your faithfulness to God isn't working, how many have had that feeling before? Look, I know what God's truths are. I'm trying to apply them. I've been doing it for the last six weeks or several years now. God promised if I would pray that, you know, my kids and grandkids would be saved and all this that hadn't happened yet and so on and so forth. There are times when it just seems like God isn't working and, and, and His, His, His uh, truths for us and, and His guidelines aren't working. You may be surprised to find that God may have been doing something unique and special through the example of your life and your faithfulness that you had no idea was going on, just like Paul saying, I had no idea that my being in jail and that my being limited with my choices and my opportunities, I had no idea that was giving brothers and sisters courage, and I had even further no idea that it was going to work its way into the inner sanctum of the White House and that people were going to be able to hear about my testimony of the gospel. You may be surprised when it seems like things aren't working just like you and I think they should, that people are watching you and watching your example and they are taking courage and encouragement by the example of your faithfulness. As one man has put it in paraphrase, the greatest measure of our spiritual maturity is what it takes to steal our joy. That's one to take home and ponder. The greatest measure of our spiritual maturity is what it takes to steal our joy. So from passion, in his case for the gospel, to problems that came as a result of that, to his perspective, which was finding reason for hope. Why did we start with the scripture? We started with God, all things even the ball and chain that feels like it's going nowhere fast. All things are possible through Christ. So I pray for our perspective in the life of the church. I pray for our perspective individually before God. I, I pray that we would be in the Word of God so that we can gain knowledgeable knowledge. You can't get that from Fox News. You can't, get, you, can't, you can't get that from Oprah. You, can't, you cannot get that from reading all the popular books that come out, and there's a lot of good things and a lot of different things. But from this word of truth, we get knowledgeable knowledge, and we get wisdom from God to know how to take that knowledge and be able to apply it so that we can separate the phony from the real. And I pray that we will acknowledge the passion that we have. If you, if you, if you couldn't answer your passion question then you need to ask God. Before you leave this place, say, God, I hadn't thought about it. What is my passion? What, what is my passion? What did you put in me that just makes me want to stay awake at night thinking about this? 
and ask God for joy in the midst of working out your passion. Ask God for joy, for a right perspective. If, any, if anybody had reason to be doom and gloom and talk about all the things that are wrong, it was Paul. But he talked about all the things that were right. So this week, why don't you practice telling your husband or your wife something right about them at the end of the day? Why don't you tell your kids something right about your kids at the end of the day or the beginning of the day? Why don't you tell, why don't you tell your Sunday school teacher something right that they have done that has been an encouragement and a blessing? Why don't you tell one of these musicians something right about how they're leading and helping us to praise God and to give Him the glory that Sue was talking about? When is the last time you affirmed somebody and said something right and begin to retrain, you know, some of these things the devil comes in and he tries to warp it? And that we would have a spirit of love and affirmation flood this place. Because the more that happens, I will tell you, people won't, they'll be standing in line to try to get in here if this is a place of affirmation. Not phony words, not sucking up, not trying to make yourself look good or any of that, but true and honest affirmation because it comes out of a spirit of love because our mind has been transformed to be the mind of Jesus Christ who said, don't think about yourself first, think about others first. And that's the, that's the key. Let's stand. So you didn't get your wish, some of you. It's like, boy, we would not mind hearing Cynthia a little more often because we get to go to lunch a little earlier. So don't hold your breath. That's going to happen all the time. I will tell you that I think I would like to bring her back occasionally to hear from, from God. I really do. I, I enjoy that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word of truth. And I don't know if I handle this just right. I tried. Sometimes it's hard to mix in the secular with the spiritual and try to make heads or tails of it. But it seemed to me that it made a little bit of sense. And here these behavioral scientists are, are really trying to figure some things out. But already in your word, you, you have given truth. And if they found a good idea, uh, they may not know it yet, but they probably can find its root in the word of God. I believe you're the one who gives that great wisdom. And so we give you praise and glory for that. And help us with our, help us with our passion. Help us with the problems that we face. And Lord, help us with our perspective about how we process those things. And help us to tr keep our trust in you, to not give up. And Father, if there are some here that are wondering, is it worth it to give your heart to Jesus Christ? Is it worth it to take a, a step of faith and to, and to trust Jesus as our Savior? Help them to hear your heart. Help them to hear your voice. Help them to know that they're here this day, right now, because you love them and you want them to be in the ark of safety and to be in heaven one day with, with you forever. So help them to open their heart to you and to pray and to ask you to be, the, be their Savior. And I thank you, Father, for making us a church, a church family, and help us to grow in our spirit of affirmation and love before one another. And all God's people said together, amen and praise the Lord.